what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Hey, welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you for listening. And I'm here with uh, my my new friend, Sue Irwin, and she is a cancer survivor and uh, she's a customer of the warm front. That's how we met, but she just, uh, we, we hit it off on the phone and just wanted to talk to Sue about her cancer survivorship and experience. And with that, Sue, thanks for making the time this Sunday. Really appreciate it. Oh, that's okay. So uh, how long ago were you diagnosed and what type of cancer was it? I have breast cancer and it was diagnosed two years ago. And how did you find out? Were you, were you did you feel bad or does it hurt? Like no, I, 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 well, I, I, um, I, tur- I was turning 70 in March and um, on, on before that, on my 69th year, I was sitting on the sofa feeling very happy with myself, thinking I hadn't ever had cancer. I've had a lot of other problems, but never cancer. And I happened to put my arm across my chest and I found a golf ball sized lump that hadn't been there. I'd had a mammogram the year before in November. This was like February of the next year. And um, obviously, uh, I had to do something about it. I went straight to the doctor and she said, it's definitely cancer. You know, you can just tell. And so it was just a progressive thing after that. Doctors, operating rooms, um, great people all around me, chemo. I mean, just everything. It's a lot to put up with, but it's the only way you can save your life. So So that sounds like that lump developed pretty quickly, November to February. I'm just counting on my fingers here. It's like four or five weeks, right? Yeah, well, the thing is, in the February two, I went and saw the uh, the uh, general nurse practitioner that I used to go to, and between her and seeing um, the uh, Jonathan Roberts, who's a surgeon in the town where I live, um, it had gone from the size of a golf ball to the size of a lemon in two and a half weeks. Oh, it was wow. moving. Yeah, it was very aggressive. It's uh, one of the ones. Uh, Dr. Robert said he wouldn't operate on me because he needed to get me into the chemo. So I met a Dr. Hadadine, who's from Jordan, very nice. Um, he put me on chemotherapy and it was a heavy dose. As I lost my hair um, within the first week of getting chemotherapy. I started having tufts of hair coming out. So I took it into my own hands and I shaved my head with the dog's clippers. <laughs> and my husband came home and finished the back for me. That was the only time through a lot of this treatment I felt that I was in control, was taking my hair off my head. It's, it was an amazing experience. I never thought I would do it and I you know I went out bald-headed because I can't wear wigs and I don't like hats and um, I refused to cover my head if people didn't want to look at me 
they didn't have to look at me, but they all knew what I had, obviously. And that lasted for about, the chemotherapy lasted for about, um, yeah, so like 12 treatments every week. And it was very, very heavy going. And your white cell count goes down and you can't be around people, particularly your grandchildren, just stuff that you you take for granted every day. I was kind of housebound. And then um, when we did the um, um, the CAT scan to see how much it had shrunk after the 12 chemos, it hadn't shrunk. It was getting, it had shrunk a little bit, but it was getting really ragged around the edges and that worried everybody. And so instead of having the surgery in like October, November, I landed up having it in July. And, um, you know, I went, my daughter was with me, the one that lives in Denver. She was with me and my husband and they were like, you need to have surgery now. So we waited till the following Tuesday and I had a double mastectomy and um, that was it. <laughs> it was kind of, and then I went through the the stage of, I thought I could handle having no breasts. I really did. And I couldn't, I, you know, I'm a little vain, but I'm not that vain. But the thing is, the scarring was horrendous because it was from one armpit to the other armpit and I couldn't work. Yeah. And I couldn't live with it. So what I did was I went and talked to, I went in to see Dr. Stefan who does all the reconstruction work uh, with Dr. Roberts group. And, um, he said the only way he could get rid of the scarring was to do implants and pull the scarring underneath the implants. So I went ahead and had implants thinking, you know, my troubles are 90% over. <laughs> little, little did I know, I, you know, I, I got through all that. I accepted that, went through the summer, this summer, you know, feeling okay. Um, but I started on my chest and, you know, it was hard to believe because Dr. Stefan finds it interesting. I've got the newest implants and they're cold. They're cold when the atmosphere is cold. They don't warm up the way natural skin and, you know, um, breasts warm up. They stay cold on your surface. And I really noticed it when I went to Scotland. I'm from Scotland. And I'm used to running around Scotland with a windbreaker on, you know, that kind of stuff, even the rain and the cold. And I usually never get cold. Every day back to the apartment my daughter had rented for a friend and I, and she came as well, I kept saying to them, I am freezing cold. And they were like, Mom, you've got 20 layers on, you know, and I was like, <laughs> I don't care. I am cold. And so... I asked them, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not shy about this. And I said, feel these implants. And they were like, what? I said, feel them. And they said they were like two ice cubes on chest. That's how cold they were. And oh yeah, they were nasty. Now, if I put 20 layers of clothes on, I can get them a little warm. You know, I wear cuddle duds and stuff like that. But the rest of me gets really hot. So I, I was fighting that as well. 
And when I got back, my husband, I told my husband about it. And he went on the internet and found your product. And I was like, that's for people that do bicycling. Why, you know, why do I need something like that? And he said, we're going to get it. We're going to try anything. He said, you cannot be cold all winter. You know, Missouri's cold, just like Colorado is. And so um, he ordered it. I got it. And I was amazed. The first time I put it on, it was, you know, I went from having cool across my chest. I was inside the house. I wasn't outside. Took nice and warm. It was kind of <laughs> snug and warm. And it did make a difference. I mean, I could sit in the basement and watch TV without having to think, these implants are getting colder. I need to go get a blanket or something. Um, I just put your your product on and I'm fine. I, it's very warm. Um, I told you the problem was it wasn't big enough, <laughs> <You know. laughs> wide enough, wide enough. That was what it was. But it actually did a really good job on me. And I was so pleased that my husband had found them. I couldn't, I just couldn't believe that a product that was made for somebody else, like bike, bicyclists and all that kind of stuff, actually could do good for me. I was very relieved. I'm not, uh, I go out and walk my dogs and everything, but I'm not outside all the time. But when you're cold, you're cold. And when it's one part of your body and it's an intense cold, it really works on you. You know, it makes you tired. You know, we've got the Missouri winter. Um, and I, I was worried about trying to keep warm during the winter. You have solved that problem for me. <laughs> so. Well, it, it means the, the world to me that you say that. And I, I didn't want this episode to be like so much of a commercial, but it's something that I've, <clears throat> I've had um, husbands and, and friends of women here in Colorado that have been through um, breast cancer and mastectomies. And I was always wanting to be very respectful about that journey and that struggle for other people. And I just had always, um, I always thought that it could help. And I, I never wanted to be exploitative, right? I never wanted to like, capitalize on somebody's journey like that. And so that's, uh, and again, I've got, you know, sort of secondhand experience with that, but understanding that it, as you described kind of the, the implants, it makes sense to me that if it's just, I think it's saline in there, right? Yeah, it's um, it's a saline with in a pla a very thick plastic container. Uh, if you put it down, it look, you know, it wobbles like a jelly mold. I know that oh. sounds weird, but yeah. And then they implant them, and then you know they obviously sew you back up. But there's nothing between you, your skin, and the implant, nothing. So your skin, if I was to pierce my skin, I would hit the implant. And so that, I think, is why they get cold. I think it's because before I had breast tissue and it would, you know, it didn't get cold. Now I think it's because of, you know, the way, the way it is. The implant is just right under my skin and... And it's, I love the implants. They've done, you know, I mean, I, I'm happy with them. Wasn't happy with the fact that I might have to spend a winter trying to keep 
my implants warm, you know? So, so it's, they're, it's, they're fine in the summer because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but not in the winter. <laughs> so it's not like the, uh, in the owner's manual, they told you what to expect, it sounds like. Well, the, the thing is, it might be an owner's manual that people talk about, but the thing is, nobody else I have met in Jefferson City, Missouri, has had this problem. So I was talking to people that had had either a single, a double, they'd been through team and everything. I'm the only one of the bunch. I did a strut, strut Your Style, which is a modeling thing for making cancer money. And I talked to a lot of women who had doubles and singles and whatever. And they have the older models. I have the I have the brand new ones that have only been in the market probably by the time I got them they'd only been in the market a few months so they they thought it was interesting I mean they really did they, like they get cold I went yep they get cold so they're actually grateful that theirs don't get cold so, sure yeah but anyway I did tell them you know that I'd found a product. Um, I was talking, we have a thing on the, my phone where there's like 10 people on the same message and we're all cancer survivors. I was telling them about it um, and they were glad that I'd found something because like all cancer survivors, you're always out to help somebody else get through your problem, you know. So I felt really good telling them and I told them, I said, if anybody gets cold implants, just let me know. I'll give you the address. <laughs> so, so it was kind of interesting. But well, it makes anyway. me so happy that I can actually, that, yeah, like I said, because I, I designed it because I was cold on the bike and to have oh, a, yeah. a second, I, I would say more important benefit to help people. It's, um, it, it makes me really proud actually, Sue. So I'm, I'm happy oh, to hear that. Well, the other thing, too, is not only would it be good for me, but it would be good for um, older people. I know I'm old, but be good for older people as well. You know, a lot of times you'll see somebody sitting in a blouse and a cardigan that's open or a guy with a shirt, you know, and not very much between his skin and the outside. What a difference it would make just to have it under your clothes to keep your chest warm. I find that your chest gets cold more than any part of your body because we seem to think, particularly women, if we put a bra on and a sweater, we're going to be warm. It's not true. And my situation is different. But I truly think there'd be a lot of people would benefit from this just to keep them, the upper part of their body warm. So yeah, well, on my long-term list is, um, uh, for the, the product, I'd love to have like an infrared camera to see and, and do some actual scientific studies to yeah. monitor that, like just either standing in the cold, walking the dogs or on the bike mm -hmm. or on the ski slopes to see what the difference is. And, you know, yeah. mom always told me to put on a hat, right. And keep your keep your body yeah. warm. But I think if you're in motion, it's the, the chest that doesn't really do anything. There's no, not a lot of blood flow. And I'm kind of figuring this yeah. out as I go. Yeah. And that's true. I mean, if you're going down on skis, you're using your arms and your leg, legs and your head's really well covered up and I'm 
you know, like a wrap around your mouth and what, sunglasses, whatever. So, but your chest doesn't do anything, as you said. So, you know, once you get cold, that is probably the coldest part of you because the rest is moving. So I think that's true. I wanted to go back to what you talked about, about feeling in control and shaving your hair. And um, uh-huh. there's two books that I'll, you don't have to write these down. I'll send them to Ed so you can take a look at them. But as you were talking about that control, I mean, one of the books that's been my go-to in times of personal crisis has been Learned Optimism. And the author talks about, um, he did a, uh, he, he mentioned this study that was people in a, in a nursing home. And one group basically was told what was going to happen. And the other group was given a choice. You know, what would you like to watch on TV? Do you want this or that? What would you like to eat? Do you want A or B? And and the, the group that felt like they were in control and it was minor things, but that had that degree of control uh, was happier, healthier. And I was just curious where that mindset for you came from to you know, make the decision about your hair, but to be aware of that, where did that come from? Well, I, I knew other people I'd never, you know, up until this point, I'd, I'd never had cancer, obviously. And I had seen other women who, um, a couple at church actually that wore head headgear, you know, either scarves around their heads or, you know, the cancer caps as I call them and everything. And I really didn't like it. I thought I didn't see why I had to that I had to be part of that in the fact that I didn't want to have anything on my head. I I can't stand it. So when I was in the house by myself, my husband was out, and I think he was at church actually, and I took out a tuft of my hair, and I have I have very straight pure white hair and you when that tuft came out you could see my scalp mm. pink and I've got spiky hair as well and um I make it like that so anyway <laughs> I, I, I yeah I spike it up with gel well that morning when I went to spike it I pull up my hair to make it spiky well when that first tuft came out that was it it was like no we are not going to spend every day for like a month waiting for my hair to fall out I would rather start off bald than go through the trauma every day of having more hair come out so I made the decision as I said I was by myself I made the decision that if I took my hair off my pillow wouldn't be covered, my bed wouldn't be covered, it wouldn't fall out in the sink or on a towel, that I would be bald. And I was happy with that. It made me feel like that was, as I said, that was the only thing I could control was that. The rest, my body was doing, like the cancer and getting the chemo and everything and all that side effects. But I did, did have control over what happened to my head, my hair. Mm-hmm. And I, I, and I, you know, I'm very, well, I'd say that I'm a little vain. I'm quite vain, actually. <laughs> so my, my husband's sitting here laughing. But anyway, I am quite vain. And the thing about it is my vanity said to me, if you don't do this, 
you're going to be miserable waiting for it all to fall out. And that's true. And I thought, no. So I went downstairs, got the dog shears. I've got three dogs. Got the dog shears and started. And I looked in the mirror, you know, I just kept shaving. I didn't cry or anything. It was something positive I did for my mental stability at that time. And I have heard other women say that, you know, particularly when they have younger children, that the younger children will, you know, um, help the mother shave her head off. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of them. And that empowers the whole family. It's like, this is going to happen, but it'll be okay. And so once I did that, I actually felt <laughs> I had a little control in my life. I had something that nobody else had told me to do. It wasn't going to kill me to keep the hair or not keep it. You know, it was something that was positive for my psyche at that time. And it really did work. I went to church and my past, I sing. And I was up there singing bald-headed and, you know, everything. (laughs) And um, my pastor is bald. And he actually called me out of the lineup of uh, singers and said, Sue and I are like twins. We have bald heads. And I went, yeah, but mine's going to grow back. Yours isn't. (laughs) Right in front of the church. But to me, it was one of the... And everybody in church... They were, particularly the men, they were like, boy, you are bald, you know? And I was like, yeah, but remember that factor. Mine grows back. Yours doesn't. <laughs> so it was, it was one of these things that, yeah, I got a lot of support from people at church, places I went, um, my work. But yeah, church was the good laugh, actually. It was all about, you know, oh, you've got no hair. And it's like, yeah, but I'm getting mine back. And <laughs> and it was kind of a big joke around church up until I got mine back. Now, I have a friend who went to church and lost her hair. She couldn't let anybody do that to her. She couldn't, you couldn't make fun of her. I mean, she just so, she was so sensitive about it. Me, it was like, hey. It, there's nothing up there, so why worry about it? And then my grandchildren were funny. I went to see them. They saw me once with bald hair, and they kind of looked at me like, hmm, is that really our grandmother, you know? And so, But then when my hair was starting to grow in, they would stroke my hair and say, it feels like fur, Gran. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they had, they had some – it made reassured them that I was going to be okay my hair was growing back and, you know, they didn't know about the rest of what was going on with me. But when the hair started coming back in, it was like, um, it was a positive thing for them. You know, they knew I was going to be okay and, you know, it was going to be a long haul, but they were going to get their grandmother back. So it worked. I mean, I had fun with it, you know, and when my hair grew back in, I went round church and said, I got hair. <laughs> so, you know, it was. It was just wonderful. And everybody was very supportive. My family, the church people. I mean, they couldn't have been nicer. They, they, you know, they helped me through many bad days of just feeling lousy all the time and, um, you know, just feeling ill, which I was. And I didn't like that feeling. So it was, it was nice, you know. I'd been ill before, but not like, you know, it wasn't cancer. And... Um, 
this is definitely an eye-opener, particularly for the women with breast cancer. You just never know. You know, it's one of these things. I, um, right now, I'm cancer-free, but, you know, I'll be kept an eye on for the next five years because once it takes about five years to get you out of worrying about breast cancer and, you know, you get hormones and everything. So, I, you know, I'm in my... Second year, I'm in my like 18th month, you know, um, uh, from the chemo, and then of course the surgery, reconstruction after that. So it's it's kind of a long haul, but I'm you know I went back to work as soon as I can. I worked part time for a vet, and um, you know I was going to church and Sunday school, that kind of stuff, and going out for meals and everything. So I really. I really appreciated the fact that I got through it so well that everybody stood, you know, was standing behind me saying, you're going to make it, you know, it did help. So, so the only problem I had, the only problem I had was my implants. Were <laughs> <cold>. <laughs> so. so dumb question here, Sue, does it hurt? Did the, did the cancer hurt at the site? No, that's okay. the problem. That is the problem with, I don't, well, other cancers, you usually like if it's the bowel, you start, I'm sorry, I'm a retired nurse, but if it's the bowel, you know, you'll bleed or you'll have some kind of abdominal obstruction or uh, pain, okay? But with breast cancer, because it's it's like a ball in there, and um, I didn't feel mine. Now, I had had an, um, well, yeah, I'd lost some weight. I always lose weight in the spring. And so I'd lost about 25 pounds again. And that's when I found it mm. because I'd had a mammogram the November before, right through Christmas. I didn't feel a thing right through till February till I'd come to that 25 pound mark in my weight. And that's when I found it. And that's why I, you know, I never, that mammogram was the first one I had in 20 years. And it, 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 I'm glad I did have it because it's actually a marker, you know, like you didn't have cancer then because they told me I didn't. And then we found it. So they knew it hadn't been growing very long. And with other women, they get a mammogram and the next year they go back, they'll find a spot and they can move in a lot quicker. I just happened to have a very, um, what's the word, Eddie? I had a very aggressive, mm. very aggressive cancer. And um, if I hadn't found it, it could have ruptured the capsule and started doing its thing in my body. But they took out seven lymph nodes on my uh, right arm and my armpit, and there was no cancer in it. So... I, I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate I found it, and I was very fortunate to come up with good doctors and to help me. They they fell into place and did what they needed to do right away. Yeah, and all our prayers were answered. It was just amazing. It was just it was a progression right through till I got over. You know, was out of the cancer and in uh, remission so that's so good to hear 
Yeah, and it's, it's an interesting road you take when you've got cancer. It changes your whole person. You know, you become, you think you're vulnerable, not because anybody's threatening you, but because your body has something in it that you have no control over. That is the problem with cancer. Once you, got, once you get the uh, diagnosis of the big C, as they call it, uh, you know, you, you, at first you hit a panic mode. Really hit a panic mode, but I was upset. But I didn't really p- hit a panic mode. I just knew that I had to be stoic. I'm very British, so I had to be <laughs> stoic and get one thing. Well, Dr. Hadadine told me that, Dr. The, um, the oncologist, he said, I knew you, you were going to make it. You're just so British. You're so stoic. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. You know, I'm British and I'm stoic. And he said, no, but you, you were great. He said, you know, a lot of women fall apart when they get breast cancer. Yeah, and the other, my husband says that, yeah, I'm just a stubborn Scot. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's lived with me for 40-odd years, so you know, he knows me. But it has been, it's been a life lesson. And, you know, whether it stays away or comes back, I will cope with it. Uh, it's, it's amazing how you start to feel about it. And, you know, I met a lot of women. I met a young woman. Her name is Troncy, unusual name. She's got young children, and she's got three different cancers. And one is breast, and one is um, liver, and I don't know where the other one is, but they're all different. And she's got this young family. So you start realizing how lucky you are. Her started out with breast cancer. And so you realize um, how lucky you can be and how unfortunate some other people can be. Some people can't beat it, and other people you know, try to beat it and stay above it. It's an amazing journey. And the people you meet are unbelievable. You know, all, all, you know, roads of earth, you know what I mean? Sorry about that. All people, it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy, poor, black, white, pink, purple, everybody you meet becomes part of your circle, particularly with breast cancer women. There's so many of us out there. So you just get to know people. And they, they, it's nice to have that sisterhood, if you want to call it that, of breast cancer. But the funny thing is, when I did Strut Your Style, it's a fashion show we do, put, we do to get money for cancer. And there was a guy there that had had breast cancer. Mm. And he strutted his stuff, and he's a wealthy guy, let me tell you. He owns one of the big companies in town, and he said he never thought in his wildest dreams that he would get it. Now, his wife, maybe, but he never thought he would get it. So it's not just women. I mean, men are starting to recognize that they're quite vulnerable as well. So it's interesting. Definitely, it takes you down a different road. <laughs> so... Do you remember the, I mean, it sounds like you handled the diagnosis incredibly well, but do you remember, was there ever a point where like the lowest point on that journey? Oh, let me tell you, I, I handled the diagnosis well. And um, 
I was, as I said, I was very stoic outside, but I'd lie in bed and, you know, I'd be, I, my, my husband would take me home from chemo and everything. I had some days when I just cried buckets, never in front of anybody but my husband. Um, I would lay in bed and, you know, and, and it was, it was why me? You know, I mm. got to the age of 70 and why me? I'd already had hep C and I already had some other things happen to me. And it was like, I was not expecting this. So I did have low points, very low points where it was like, I'm not going to get through this, but it was never outside when I was out like at church or with the grandkids or even with my own kids. It was never in front of them. It was always a positive. Yeah, the, the, the chemo is the hardest part, but I never let anybody outside of like my husband and a couple of really good friends know how bad I felt. I was always really, as Dr. Haddadine said, I was always really stoic in front of everybody. I did exactly what I needed to do. I didn't complain. I just, you know, I put up with it. I had a port um, access put in. You know, I had five surgeries, I mean, and chemo on top of that. And um, a lot of people didn't realize that I was falling apart inside. I was, I have a stoic front, you know, but my husband always knows when I felt, you know, my husband always knew when I felt bad, but um, I had to get through this. I mean, when I was out at doctor's appointments and chemo and, you know, that kind of thing, I, I never, I never really let on that, you know, it was affecting me too badly. Yeah, I put, as my husband says, I put on a good front. And then when I got home, <laughs> Well, he would be the one that was left with the pieces, you know. I, I mean, and if you've got a good partner, husband, whatever, when you get a diagnosis of uh, cancer, it's the best thing, you know, having a partner who understands, cares, doesn't care if you've got breasts, doesn't care if you get implants or no implants, you know. It, it's amazing how that makes you feel as well. Um, I have another young friend at church who had a double mastectomy in her 30s, and she got married um, when she was in her 30s, and um, she she didn't think he would accept her. It was after she'd had the cancer. She didn't think he would accept her the way it was, and they're happily married now, and she doesn't have implants. So it just, you know, it's just what you can cope with and how the people that me lots you around you can help you with that's what happened with me my husband is always by my side always so it's well, a ed, big... ed sounds amazing he sounds like an amazing yeah it is yeah he's he's an amazing guy without him i wouldn't have made it i mean he causes my stoicness you know i knew i had to keep going because it was important to him and, you know, I had grandchildren and friends, at, you know, particularly at church. I really, you know, I couldn't let down. So, How did you and Ed meet, Sue? You said you've been married oh, about 40 years. All right. That's a good one. <laughs> um, my, my husband was, um, I'm, he was at the Holy Lock in Scotland, which was this, where this, this, this submarine base. 
and it's got a tender and it's got other parts to dry dock and everything. And my husband was on a team called the Sims team, which um, checked the... What? Yeah, trend analysis and, and, you know, the hulls and everything of these boats that go out under the sea. Um, anyway, he um, he was there and I was there. I was working at the local hospital and had got to know the Americans really well. Now, you have to remember or know that I was born into a military family. My dad was in the army for 27 years in the British army. So I was born into that lifestyle. So anyway, I was around, Danoon was where I, he was stationed and I was working for the local hospital. And one night he asked me out and um, just, you know, playing darts at somebody's house. And uh, he was throwing darts. And a lot of the women around me because their husbands were at home, they were in various stages of pregnancy because, you know, the men were at home for like two years, which is kind of odd, you know, they're usually away a lot. And so they kind of said to me, when are you getting married? So I shouted through to Ed, uh, when are we getting married, Ed? He said, you name the date and I'll be there. I said, <laughs> I said June the 14th, which was six weeks from the day, and he married me. <laughs> this is on your first date. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and he and he says, "I finally figured out what happened." <laughs> but, but he always looks at a bottle of Glenfiddich, and he's like, mm, "That night he was shooting darts. They were all drinking Glenfiddich and beer, you know." And he's Glenfiddich. Anytime I mention Glenfiddich, he's like, "I know what happens." Interesting. <laughs> 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 But, um, yeah, that's how we met. We met and married in six weeks, and we've been married 43 years and 44 coming up. So it was oh, meant to be. What day is your anniversary? Um, June, sorry, June 14th. So we've been married, we'll be married 44 years. Oh, congratulations. So and we've got two children and, you know, um, and we, I have two stepchildren. My husband was married before, and he had two sons, and then he has four, and I have two, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a, it's a wonderful situation, you know. Um, we traveled a little after I married him around the States, and then um, we settled in Jefferson City because my husband got offered um, a really good job at the power plant here. And when he... Yeah, he retired from the Navy. He did 20 years. Mm. And um, on 20, he had put out resumes to a few places. So he chose Missouri, because that's Jefferson City, particularly because his family was here, particularly his mother. And so we, we, came, we brought the kids here and um, after he retired, and they kind of got to know their grandmother. So that was the good thing about it. Um, and he had an excellent job out at uh, Union Electric, which is Amaron now. Um, and, you know, he worked 20-odd years with them as well. So he's, he's done his bit. He deserves <laughs> his retirement, let me tell you. So. Well, Sue, this has been so entertaining to get to know you a couple of weeks ago and have this conversation <laughs> and just... 
um, mm -hmm. your, 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 your mental power and your support system. And it's just so wonderful to hear. I can't thank you enough. Oh, that's okay. I, you know, I, as I said, you don't have to send this back to me once you, you know, edit it and everything. That would be fine. I, you know, I'm not, nothing you can say will phase me. So whatever you need to do, do. Um, it won't bother me. Well, <clears throat> thank you so much. And I hope, uh, you know, women and, and, and families and people that have women that are going through this will listen to this and, um, you know, be inspired yeah. or encouraged by this. And that's why I wanted to talk to you and, and record this. So it's amazing. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it because I think the more women talk about it, the better it is for women that are going through it. Because, you know, years ago when they said the big C, that's how they used to say it. They didn't say cancer. There's nothing to be ashamed of with cancer. But, you know, somehow it's just, I don't know, it's just got a bad name, which it, it is a terrible disease. But if we don't talk about it and try to help one another, you know, it's going to be, it would be a mess. We have to stick together so that we can get through this. I, I so couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. I, and it, I and rely on friends just, and family. Yeah. Well, it's true what they say. One people, one person in three will have cancer. It doesn't have to be breast cancer, it can be any cancer, and that everybody will have at least one to two people in their immediate families that will have cancer as well. So it's not something we should hide under a, you know, a big olive leaf or anything. We need to be out there and speaking about it and, and doing what we need to do and make money for, you know, survivors and uh, people that are going through it to help them out. So it's really an interesting, I never thought I would be talking about cancer, to tell you the truth. Um, I don't mind talking, but I never thought it would be about cancer. So, <laughs> so anyway. Uh, well, you're, you're just a joy. I'm, I'm so happy that uh, we met in this way. And it's just, it's been wonderful to get to know you and Ed. So thank you so much, Sue. Hey, the other thing before you go off the yeah. phone, um, when I come up to see my daughter, I might give you a call so I can meet you. I would absolutely love that. Oh, you I'd love it too. <laughs> <laughs> that would yeah, be great. She lives, a, she lives in Aurora. I don't know where you are. Oh, uh, I'm in Parker. We're no more than probably 10, eight miles apart. Oh, well, good. Well, I definitely will give you a call then, okay? <laughs> Do you have a, a trip scheduled? Well, we, we just literally, you know, neither winter setting in. We'll have one in spring probably okay. once the snows have gone. And she's busy. I mean, she's got a husband and um, you have no children and they do a lot of traveling. So I have to kind of schedule it in there, you know, like, are you going to be home this week? So <laughs> yeah, They go to like Iceland and Scotland and uh, all over the States and yeah, they're busy, really busy. So, and it's all traveling, which I, she really loves. So anyway, well, I will make sure that if I come up that way, I'll give you a call. I will drop whatever's going on to make time to hang out with you and Ed. I, I, I absolutely want to meet you in person. So yeah, and you want, and I'll bring my daughter along. She's a 
pistol just like me. So <laughs> you'll, you'll enjoy her too. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Sue, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for making the time for me today. Oh, that's okay. Thank you very much for asking me to make sure. it. Sure. Well, have a, have a great Sunday and give Ed a big hug for me. Okay, I will. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. All right, bye. This episode is supported by the Warm Front Chest Warmer, and you're asking yourself right now, what is a Warm Front? Well, it is a thermal fleece bib for cycling, running, skiing, and we've even had customers that are commuting with it, just wearing it because they uh, want to be warmer, wearing it to their construction jobs. It's been sold all over the world, Australia, the UK, Latvia, US and Canada, even Dubai. We have a customer in Dubai. It's a company I started a couple years ago because I was sick and tired of being cold on the bike and not having enough stuff or carrying too much stuff. And literally with the help of dozens and dozens of people helped get the company and the product to where it is right now. It is essentially the Goldilocks of outdoor apparel. Not too hot, not too cold. If you get cold, put it on. You get hot, take it off, roll it up, stuff it in your pocket. It rolls down to smaller than a pair of socks. It is made by hand here in Colorado by my friend and business partner, Linda, with a collaboration from Function Apparel and Polar Tech. I guarantee it personally 100% if you don't like it, if it doesn't make your ride and your outdoor activities more comfortable, send it back, no questions asked. For more information and to get warmer and prevent purple nurple, go to thewarmfront.com. That is T-H-E-W-A-R-M-F-R-O-N-T dot com.